In June this year, the leaders of the world's wealthiest liberal democracies met in Cornwall in the UK. The members of the Group of Seven, or G7, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK and the USA, represented some of the nations that were worst hit by the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. They saw some of the highest death tolls and the worst economic impacts from coronavirus. So they met with recovery and reconstruction in mind. This was also a moment for the resumption of business as usual in global politics. A new American president, Joe Biden, arrived to represent the interests of what is, still and barely, the world's biggest economy and foremost power. The perceived threat of China hung over the meeting, with China, not a member of the G7, courting or punishing some of the countries present, and sometimes doing both. While the recent past and the difficult present were both up for discussion on this rocky, windswept corner of England, the future loomed large too. All the G7 nations have made big promises on climate change in recent years. Joe Biden came to power promising something like a Green New Deal, taking up large parts of the agenda presented by activists and the US Democratic Party's left flank during the election year in 2020. Three of the nations present at the meeting are members of the EU, which has pledged a carbon-neutral continent by 2050. The UK, meanwhile, has promised a green industrial revolution, with huge investments in technology to help avoid and even abate carbon emissions. Australia was there too, on the sidelines, with Prime Minister Scott Morrison repeating his government's preferences to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. A club of the world's most powerful nations coming together to promise us a better world. It sounds good, but what does it mean? Is this a story we've heard before? And if it is, how do we write a better ending to the story this time around? I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. Look, the climate crisis is not our fight alone, it's a global fight. So my message to you all is that together we can use scientific advances to protect our entire planet, our biosphere, against a challenge far worse, far more destructive, even than coronavirus. Now, Australia is also taking real action on climate change, and we're getting results. We are successfully balancing our global responsibilities with sensible and practical policies to secure our environmental and our economic future. In this season of Barely Getting By, we're looking to the recent past of the world's efforts to combat climate change, to try to get to grips with the present, as we mark off yet another year of what experts agree is the crucial decade to avoid the worst, most catastrophic effects of global heating. And we've known for a long time that this, the 2020s, is that crucial decade. But the politics of climate hasn't changed. We want to understand why, what might happen next, and, importantly, put Australia's climate politics into global and historical perspective. A lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. Chloe's had a significant change in her life since yeah, then, haven't you? I got a dog. But thankfully this season we are back in the studio so she will not be barking in the background as we talk. And you wrote a book. I did. I've written a book on the, the history and future of Australia's relationship with the United States that will be out in August, which yes. is very exciting. So we may be slipping in a few plugs for Emma's book as we head towards her publication date. Um, look, yeah, last time we spoke, Emma, 
we were speaking, it was just before the inauguration and it was just after the riots and the violence on the Capitol. And, you know, I think we were, as is kind of our MO on this show, we were, we were full of foreboding about what might happen. But the inauguration, it passed without violence. Emma, what's, what's happened to the American right since Joe Biden came to the presidency? Look, I think, you know, there was that moment after the inauguration when it had, as you said, Chloe, kind of passed without violence, I think, against the expectations of a lot of people. And there was there was in this kind of moment where it seemed like there might be, you know, a proper investigation into what had happened on the Capitol on the 6th of January and that, you know, we might be moving into a new era of American politics. I think since then it has, it has become increasingly evident, of course, that that isn't going to happen and that the right the Republican Party in the United States is essentially doubling down. They've kind of stymied any efforts and investigation and are following a pretty familiar playbook in trying to thwart Joe Biden's legislative agenda, which also means, of course, his climate agenda. Yes, and of course, Joe Biden did call a global climate summit in April, which was intended to, I guess, announce the US's return to return to the climate stage and its return to leadership on climate. How did that go? That is an interesting question. I think that there was so much expectation placed on this climate summit, as you, exactly as you said, Chloe. It's kind of it was framed as the United States' return to global leadership and the return to to politics as usual, and the kind of grown ups being back in charge, I suppose. But very little, I think, in the in the form of actual substance came out of the climate summit. I'm not sure that that's that was its actual purpose so much as a a kind of reframing of that global stage. Um, again, to kind of say that the grown-ups are back in charge to solicit pledges from otherwise recalcitrant nations, you know, places like Canada, um, fossil fuel reliant economies like Japan, which have have all made significant commitments. But in terms of, you know, the kind of significant pressure that I think was was widely expected from the United States, especially on places like Australia, that was not, I think, really forthcoming. And I think it's... um. One of the interesting questions that we're going to be addressing in this series of Barely Getting By is whether that idea of US leadership on climate change, whether that that ever really was the case or whether we should have, you know, we have always actually looked to other nations and to other other groupings of nations for leadership when it comes to climate. And, you know, there, of course, I'm talking about Europe and the European Union. Yeah, of course. And I think one of the things that um, I guess... Joe Biden's presidency has done is is make space for you know the global media to focus on something that isn't the United States and that isn't Donald Trump in particular, which means in Australia we can say finally we're starting to pay a bit of attention to what's happening in the European Union, especially when it comes to climate policy and the potential consequences for the Australian economy. Yeah, and look, this has been going on for quite some time. But so Australia has been in negotiations for a free trade agreement with the European Union for the last few years. And as part of the European Union's plans for a European Green Deal, they've announced plans for what well what they will call a carbon border adjustment mechanism, what we hear referred to in Australia in the Australian press as a carbon border tax, where effectively they're going to leverage a tax on imports from countries that they don't see as doing enough work on on reducing carbon emissions, and that's about you know leveling the playing field between European producers and manufacturers, and and outsiders and for, and and foreign manufacturers. Um, it's being framed as a punitive measure in Australia, but I think you know 
it's also a real challenge to us to see to to see if we can really, I guess, you know, start taking climate change seriously and start actually understanding the impacts that our lack of action on climate is having in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's two really important things that are going on there that we'll keep coming back to all of the time, which is exactly as you were just describing how discussions of climate policy in at least kind of the mainstream in Australia are framed as economic questions rather than questions of morality. And that's where exactly, as you say, Chloe, we see this framing of, of economic policy designed to deal with climate as a punishment of Australia specifically rather than a kind of global moral imperative. Well, morality but also planetary survival, which I think is something we're definitely going to be talking about in this series. <laughs> yes, absolutely, which again is not something that kind of gets spoken about, um, which is, I guess, sort of getting to my second point where there's another separation that exists between climate policy and questions of trade and security. And that really came out, I think, in the G7 in June, which was kind of supposed to be about climate, but mostly, in fact, because of the Biden administration, became about China. Yeah. Look, Em, I think it'd be great for you to unpack that a little bit because we, you know, I mean, once again, we do have this quite, I, th- I think I've, I've referred to it previously on the podcast as an impoverished discussion of China in the Australian media in particular. How is Joe Biden's administration approaching China on those trade questions, but also on those questions around climate? I think to the surprise of quite a few people, Biden is quite hawkish on China. He has, in fact, continued a lot of the Trump administration's policies when it comes to China and and really kind of announced his return or the United States' return through him to the world stage with a really hawkish approach to China and this framing of global politics and US leadership as being about lining up the liberal democracies of the world against autocracy in China and, and to a lesser extent, I think, Russia. That conversation seems to be happening entirely separately from Biden's declaration of American leadership when it comes to climate. And that, again, I think, Chloe, is where we get back to your point about morality and global <laughs> global survival because in order to get the action we need, those two areas can't in fact be separate because, you know, if the world want to, wants to combat climate change, then the United States is going to have to work with China and it's going to have to work with Russia. And, you know, in, in Biden's great one-on-one first meeting with Putin, climate change didn't rate a mention. And that's where I think, again, it would be really useful in Australian commentary to have a little bit more space for a discussion of both the history behind that but also what is going on outside of, you know, American leadership on the global stage because there are other really important actors that are approaching questions of authoritarianism and China in quite different ways. Yeah, and look, and once again I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to throw back to talking about the the European Union because, you know, we have this we have this ongoing discussion about China and trade and China sort of throwing its weight around in global trade and punishing countries that it doesn't see as sort of towing the towing the line. Um and that's sort of running alongside this ongoing discussion of, you know, of serious human rights violations by the Chinese Chinese regime in, in Xinjiang and, you know, and sort of threats, threats to democracy in Hong Kong. The US has sort of, I guess, aligned those two as as the same issue. You know, it is China trying to trying to impose itself as a political and an economic superpower. If we look at Europe, there and you know, and I wouldn't say that they're doing so necessarily that that successfully at this point, but they're trying to separate these two issues out. 
So, you know, the, the European Union is trying to cooperate with China on trade at the same, while at the same time calling out human rights abuses and trying to do what it can to say, for, for instance, to end, you know, supply chains of cotton from Xinjiang. So it's, I think it's interesting that, you know, we do have to, we have to separate out politi- you know, human rights and politics from trade, but also keep in mind the fact that we do need to cooperate with China when it comes to climate change. And China has to be a partner in any serious efforts at mitigating global carbon emissions. And also, you know, there is no reason for us not to take seriously China's pledge to be carbon neutral by 2060. So talking about those those big actors, so places like the USA, like the European Union and China, that's kind of our frame for this series of Barely Getting By. We're going to go back and look at the history of global efforts to mitigate carbon emissions through the, from the perspectives of those big players and also look at how Australia fits into that and how Australia's own efforts sort of play into that larger global scheme. This is really important, but I guess... Alongside talking about the how of addressing climate change, we also want to think about how we should think and how we should feel about these challenges. Because I know that, you know, on this podcast, we could very reasonably be accused of being climate alarmists and climate pessimists. But I'm increasingly of the opinion that if we're going to if we're going to take serious action on climate change and take it now which is when we which is when we have to be doing that we need to also find hope and we need to find reasons not to despair i think that is both true and also increasingly difficult from a at least from a personal perspective um you know even just this week reading leaked un reports um, on climate change and seeing quotes like devastating climate impacts are accelerating and bound to become painfully obvious before a child today turns 30 which must have been a bit of a gut punch for you it 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 is and it and it feels like they're coming you know all the time and and i think without overstating how having small children kind of frames the way we think about these things. To me personally, that that means sometimes finding hope is, you know, feels almost impossible, but it also feels increasingly necessary because how else do you get through it? That report that you're referring to, the leaked IPCC report, I read that over, you know, over my morning porridge and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, what gloomy bit of news has Emma sent me today? That's, yeah, that's how I start most of my days, it seems. But I was reading that and, you know, it's it was interesting. The tone of it was interesting because it did seem to be, you know, it was, it was calling for action now, but it was once again framing framing the future under under conditions of catastrophic climate change as, you know, this this calamity. And it's talking about, you know, catastrophic climate change and the potential for civilizational collapse. And I guess that always leaves me with a bit of a question, which is, what do you mean? What does what does that look like? And that's where, you know, I think we have to go beyond perhaps science and policy and politics and start using our imaginations to start thinking about, you know, what 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 does civilizational collapse mean? What does it look like? And, you know, what what actually, what are the options we have, we still have, even if we do see three degrees of warming by the end of the century, to, you know, I guess make something out of, out of a world that will be drastically changed. And, you know, and I think that that's why, that's where we can potentially find some hope because, you know, we know that there are things that are wrong with our world. We know that, you know, there is a resurgent right in the USA that has, you know, maybe may more subdued but isn't going away. How do we make a better world out of, out of a world that is changing? And I think that that is still an open question 
regardless regardless of what you know the science is telling us is going to happen to our planet. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're focused on questions of resilience or adaptation in in the way that we're used to hearing those words. Well, again, and you know, like like talking about civilizational collapse in these you know really dramatic terms, I think these ideas of resilience and adaptation they're both you know they're really worthy and important ideas. But again, we can kind of get lost in pessimism and negativity when we think about them because, you know, I mean, the idea of resilience, it always calls to mind people just putting up with adverse conditions. The way I want to start thinking about resilience and, I, you know, I guess the way that I want to start thinking about how we're responding to climate change in this series of the podcast is what 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 does, what does resilience demand of us in terms of, I guess, the care that we're showing for people, the creativity we're showing in the way that we adapt to climate change and, you know, and I guess like how are we focusing on the things that we once again those things that we can make good in the in these changed conditions yeah and i think that's again that's something that gets lost in kind of mainstream discussions of climate change which really separate us as humans out from the environment and treat us as something kind of outside of nature and and part of what we're interested in doing in these this series is looking into ideas that don't do that and seeking to understand the history um, and philosophy behind concepts like just transitions or Green New Deals, that at least try not to make that really distinct separation between the economy and our lives and nature. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it might be a big ask for a handful of episodes over this over this Melbourne winter. Um, but yeah, that's what we're going to be trying to do in this series, isn't it? We're going to be looking at global efforts to combat climate change, where they've fallen short, and how we might reimagine reimagine the global effort on carbon emissions to make a more just and you know a more viable planet even under you know conditions of 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 potentially catastrophic climate change but of course we uh, can't do that alone no that is a huge massive ask. <laughs> so we will be drawing on scholarship from all over the world, both both recent and not so recent, and we'll be joined by some expert guests from here at RMIT University and beyond for this fourth season of Barely Getting By. In our next episode, Heroes and Villains, we will start at the beginning with scientists' first warnings about the potentially catastrophic impacts of climate change and look at how the world responded then and why it failed. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.